Okay. So, hello, Venerables. Now, officially, <laughs> thank you for hello. being there. Thank you for hello. being there for us uh, on this uh, Dhamma discussion. And uh, I will start by saying that uh, this will be um, Dhamma discussion about uh, free will, uh, like how free is our will and uh, concept of anatta in, in Buddhist philosophy. And um, first of all, I will uh, introduce our special guest. We have uh, Ajahn Brahmali and Venerable Karunika here. So I will read their biography. So Ajahn Brahmali was born in Norway in 1964. He first became interested in Buddhism meditation in his early 20s after a visit to Japan. Having completed degrees in engineering and finance, he began his monastic training as an Anagarika, keeping the eight precepts in England at Amaravati and Chitras Buddhist Monastery. After hearing teachings from Ajahn Brahm, he decided to travel to Australia to train at Bodhinyana Monastery. Ajahn Brahmali has lived at Bodhinyana Monastery since 1994, and he was ordained as a bhikkhu with Ajahn Brahm as his preceptor in 1996. In 2015, he will be entered his 20th Reigns Retreat as a fully ordained monastic and received the title Mahatera, Great Elder. So it was eight years ago. <laughs> Ajahn Brahmali's knowledge of the Pali language and of the suttas is excellent. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translated most of the Pali canon into English for wisdom publication, called him one of his major helpers for the recent translation of the numerical discourses of the Buddha. He also published two essays on dependent origination and a book called The Authenticity of Early Buddhist Texts with the Buddhist Publication Society in collaboration with Bande Sujato. The monastics of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia often turn to him to clarify Vinaya, monastic discipline or sutta questions. They also greatly appreciate his sutta and Pali classes Furthermore, he has been instrumental in most of the building and maintenance projects at Boninyana Monastery and at the emerging Hermit Hill property in Serpentine. Apart from the regular talks at Dhammaloka Center in Perth, Ajahn Brahmali and Ajahn Sujato have also led two ongoing courses on early Buddhism and Kama and Rebirth in 2014 and 2015. Ajahn Brahmali's clear and thoughtful talks make the teachings of the Buddha easily accessible to all. As his teachings and sutta retreats in Australia were getting more and more popular over the years, as and as the word about him spread, he started to travel to Singapore, Indonesia, and Sri Lanka recently to share his knowledge and experience. So we are very honored to have Ajahn Brahmali there. And now I will read biography of Venerable Karunika. Aya Karunika is currently the senior resident monastic at Santi Forest Monastery and has been in monastic life for over 13 years, she received her full ordination as a bhikkhuni in 2014 at Dhammasara Nuns Monastery in Western Australia, where she lived and trained for over a decade with Ajahn Hasapanya. She is also a student of Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Brahmali. Aya Karunika is able to articulate the Buddhist teachings in a way that is practical and pro comprehensible to people of all ages and has experience in conducting day retreats for both adults and youth. While she has a PhD in microbiology and work as a scientist, she has also been the building project manager for the construction of Dhammasara main monastery complex and has worked with many volunteers over the years. Aya Karunika was born in Sri Lanka, but has been living and working in Australia for over two decades. 
She has a passion to share her experience and knowledge and loves working with people and also doing creative projects. So we are also honored to have Venerable Karunika here. And now I will just say a few words about myself as a person who conducts this uh, discussion. So I'm Piotr Planeta. Uh, my nickname is Sunya Nando and uh, I am a PhD student of philosophy. And my dissertation topic is cognitive and functional aspects of meditation in Theravada Buddhism. I'm also like lay teacher of Dhamma and meditation, organizing retreats and various events with monastics. And now I'm especially um, like uh, giving my work to uh, connecting Poland with Buddhist society of Western Australia with tradition of Ajahn Brahm and organizing various events with various monks and trying to set up uh, perhaps a monastery or some meditation center in Poland that will be associated with Ajahn Brahm uh, like uh, lineage or his disciples. And, uh, and yeah, and, and actually this uh, meeting, I will just say a few words how uh, it came about. So we had this uh, one of our monthly meetings with Venerable Karunika, where she gave a very moving talk about uh, how can we, um, how can we embrace difficult people? And there she presented uh, uh, the main argument was that we should just remember that they are conditioned. And because of that, uh, they don't have much choice in their actions. So it's easy to forgive when we see them as uh, victims of their own conditioning and they create bad karma. So we can easily have for compassion and forgiveness for them. And uh, we were in Poland very moved by this talk and uh, it got us thinking. We had a very big discussion about free will. So I decided to write an email to Venerable Karonika and we exchanged some emails about uh, free will, anatta, determinism, conditioning and stuff like that. And she proposed that maybe we could have this discussion uh, online so more people could uh, benefit from this discussion. And so it happened that Bhante Ajahn Brahmali visited Sydney, uh, the Santi Forest Monastery, and, and so Venerable also invited Ajahn Brahmali because it's good to ask Ajahn these questions. <laughs> And so we are here now uh, to really delve deeply into this discussion of uh, free will, conditioning, determinism, anatta from Buddhist perspective. Uh, so, so yeah, this is the introduction. And uh, so let's dive into it. Are you ready? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. It depends <laughs> on whether you want or not. <laughs> okay, so uh, maybe I will just uh, like give some... Uh, initial uh, thoughts and then you can comment on it. So uh, my way of thinking about this, uh, what was interesting to me is uh, because uh, let's say uh, this aspect of forgiveness was was the initial spark. So uh, th this idea that everything is conditioned and determined makes it very easy to forgive people because then you just see that when they do some wrongdoings to you, then you can just uh, see that they are conditioned. They have no choice. They are just victims of their own habits. And because of that, it's easier to like, yeah, I forgive you because you had no choice. Because I thought that uh, we get angry at people because they actually make a choice to do something bad, which is hurtful. You could have done otherwise, but you chose to hurt me. So yeah, I have anger, anger. <laughs> And that got me thinking, uh, but then I started to wonder, is it true that really people have no choice in their actions? And uh, I, I, I thought that from philosophical perspective, uh, we can come about to this free 
basic positions. Maybe you will tell me it's not uh, true, but uh, uh, let's say that uh, let's let's get that at the starting point. So um, uh, and the free and and so I will give the shortcut, uh, you know, analysis of these free free um, options. How can we treat free will or determinism conditioning in Buddhism? So the first option is just hard determinism where everything is absolutely fixed from the unfolding chain of cause and effect, going back mm -hmm. as far that no mind can find the beginning, but everything is just unfolding according to laws of nature, totally determined. And mm -hmm. from Buddhist perspective, what is important in this view, that also intentions, sankharas and chaitana, all this aspect of our will is also con totally conditioned. So if I, for example, speak these words right now, they are completely conditioned by my past conditioning. So. In fact, on the ultimate level, I would have no choice what to say. It just happens as it is. And uh, in the Buddhist practice from this perspective is like you hear the word of the Buddha, you get convinced, and then you start to practice and you realize the path because you are conditioned by external circumstances in the way that all your choices leads more and more towards Dhamma. So uh, in the way, it was ultimately conditioned at some level that you had to do this this way, and in this way you get liberated. So, uh, and some people in Buddhist circles understand anatta in this way. I have seen it in some monastics and also in some people discussing this on forums that, yeah, anatta means that, every, that there is no agent, everything is just loss of nature, determined, and it just flows like that. So this is the first option, let's call it determinism. The second option I call conditioning, uh, which is that uh, the most of reality is determined, but there's one thing that is unique, and that is uh, chaitana, the will, the uh, intention or sankharas, and uh, that they have a degree of choice within this conditioned reality. And uh, I think also like Ajahn Punyadamo in his talk about free will also presents this view, and he argues that in Abhidhamma it is said that like their nature is is determined, but when uh, conscious being starts to appear in universe, then this consciousness have this uh, ability to to actually be indetermined in this system of determination. So the will is the like new level that it actually make choices, and uh, so they are not fully conditioned. So let's say. We have some conditioning, like for example, uh, I can, let's say I, I choose between apple and orange. I like apple right now, so I choose apple, it's conditioned. But actually, I have some freedom of choice. Of course, it's limited to what I know and stuff like that. But there is this element of choice which really influences the reality. So in this view, uh, reality is not set uh, like cause and effect only because this will actually influences and creates reality ongoingly. So uh, so reality is not really determined because it's constantly created by beings who make choices. And in this view, I think Anatta cannot admit that there is no any form of agent in reality, even though it's, this agent is not a permanent self, because this agent is conditioned, it will pass away, it dies and stuff like that, but as long as it exists, it exerts some freedom of choice. Of course, this freedom is, con it, this choice is a little conditioned, but you have some freedom that you choose and that creates ongoing stream of reality. And I would say that this agent in Buddha's teachings in, is called simply a sentient being. 
And the third option is absolute free will, that we can choose whatever we like. Uh, so, of course, this is completely unacceptable from Buddhist perspective because we know that conditioning is obvious. So this option is not, not really relevant. So the question is about these two first options. Is everything determined or is there some uh, agent that actually has some little choice? So that's uh, like the uh, first uh, first thing. And how would you respond to that? Uh, do you think that uh, there is this, at least some, that this Chaitana is, is, is different, that it creates reality ongoingly or is everything set up or this question is, is wrongly conceived? How do you see all that? Okay, who should start? Piotr, do you want to you well, direct the question? No, no, uh, please, uh, whoever you, you feel like first. Okay, so, all right, so I, I, I will start. Just, uh, why not? Please, Someone please, has to start. Yes, so yes, yes, please, Ajahn. Could be the condition, but I will start anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that option one is the, uh, the correct one. And uh, I, I mean, and I think it is very important to uh, understand different kinds of determinism. Uh, the kind of classical determinism in Western thought that you find, for example, in Christianity, uh, is the idea that your destiny is set. Yeah, You know that you will go to hell, hell or you know that you will go to heaven. Uh, and however you live your life is irrelevant. You can live your life this way, but still you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven when you die. That's kind of destiny. That's determinism. That's the classical way. So what, but what that means is that your actions, your energy, your initiative, your will, all of that has no effect on what happens to you. No? Yeah? And that is a kind of a, a strange kind of determinism, right? It does. I, I mean, all our lives, we know that our actions have an effect. So it's kind of weird that actions should have no effect. It doesn't make, make much sense. Uh, but the Buddhist determinism, as you rightly say, is that uh, we know that intention has an effect. We know that chaitana, the will, has an effect. What we do matters in the world. We can initiate things, we have energy, we can, uh, you know, etc., etc. But the question is, then, where does that will come from? Where does that energy come from? Uh, and if that energy and that will is uh, determined by other things, uh, then uh, that is where there is uh, determinism. It's a broader kind of determinism, which incorporates uh, the, the will, etc., with, within itself. Uh, and so... <coughs> So then the question is, um, excuse me, <coughs> the question then is, uh, that Chaitana, if, if it is free, how, how can it be free? How, what are the mechanisms by which the Chaitana can be free? And uh, from a Buddhist point of view, everything in our mind, everything in the world, everything is just a, a kind of a mass of cause and conditions. Look at dependent origination. Dependent origination is the how the five khandhas evolve according to cause and conditions. And there's nothing outside of those cause and conditions. There is no self. There is no permanent entity. There's nothing that's able to stand outside of them and make independent decisions. Everything is part of this causal nexus and condition nexus of, of reality. So the the whole idea of free will only makes sense if something stands apart from cause and conditions. And that is why it is a very relevant question in Christianity, because in Christianity you have God, right? God creates the universe out of 
his, her, its, its free will, whatever, whatever, I'm not sure what the gender of God is these days, but varying a little <laughs> bit. Uh, so, yeah, so God created, but of course, God does that out of uh, its own free will, right? Okay, I decide, okay, create the world. Uh, and because God has free will, and God creates human beings in his own image, or whatever you want to call it, it gives human beings free will as well. And then that explains many of the uh, doctrinal problems in uh, Christianity, like the problem of evil and these kind of things that explain by giving people free will, they can do bad things. Uh, and so within a Christian context, the problem of free will is actually very meaningful, uh, and it makes sense. Uh, but when there's there's nothing that stands apart from all the causal phenomena. How can you even begin to talk about free will? Everything is just conditioned things. Uh, everything, and then the will ultimately is just supporting other things that are also conditioned. Uh, the whole idea of free will, there's no room for it. There's no space for it. There's no gap in which free will can be inserted into this thing. Yeah. That's how I think about it. Uh. Okay, thank you, Ajahn. Should I respond, or Venerable you, Karunika, you want to add something to that? Wouldn't have to add anything because this was the description and I'm not very familiar with the Christian thought. So I'm happy with what Ajahn said. I'll add other things as we go on. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So I will, uh, thank you Ajahn for this uh, response. I think, um, I, 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 uh, I understand where you're coming from. And now, uh, so what emerges there, it's, it's obvious that if we want to answer this question, we need to delve deeper into doctrine of anatta, because you are saying that because there is anatta, there cannot be agent that is, um, uh, you know, responsible for choices. It's just completely conditioned process. And it's, of course, a perspective that I, uh, that I consider very seriously. Uh, I think, uh, what, how, for example, Ajahn Punyadamo describes it, it is that, uh, like, uh, because you ask, how can we say that this Chaitana is different? Well, if we, for example, look on it a little bit from biological perspective, then, uh, when the matter, uh, have the certain level of uh, complexity, like the brain, then there is this, uh, speculation that perhaps the brain has this new ability to, um, like, uh, like emerges like new level of reality that is so complex that it actually stops being fully deterministic and, uh, and can reflect on its own, uh, processes. And due to this complexity, these choices are maybe there emerges like a new way that, uh, that actually can make some little um, influence. And, uh, of course, from perspective of, of such, uh, way you understand anatta, that wouldn't be the case. But, um, I'm not sure if, uh, there is support in suttas for, uh, such extreme, like, <laughs> view of anatta, because how I, uh, let's say anatta lakhano sutta says that, uh, you cannot compel form to be this or that. Or, or feeling, uh, perception, choices and consciousness. Uh, but it's, I, I, how I understand it, it just, um, you cannot, you are, we are not omnipotent. You cannot just will everything to be happy and stuff like that, but it doesn't say we cannot influence it. And uh, I think it, it comes a little bit, uh, like, for example, there was this early school of Buddhists called Putgalavada that, they say that even though ultimately there is anatta, that on some conventional level, there is a person, the sentient being that 
uh, has this chaitana and and i think they understand that they can make these little choices so i think that uh, maybe there is some complexity of reality that has uh, different uh, that emerges this 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 new uh, level that that can make choices uh so that's that's maybe a possibility and um so yeah that's how i how i would answer and the, the second thing is that um can i can i reply to that one yeah 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 you? yeah please please yeah so okay great so now this is this is actually a nice way of framing i like that and i and i think that's an interesting one and i think it's something that needs to be responded so First of all, I would say, you know, the idea that uh, you have emergent properties like consciousness, you know, sometimes people in neuroscience say that consciousness emerges from, ma from material phenomena. When you get enough, as you say, enough neurons and a complex yes. network, then consciousness somehow pops out of that, yeah? But, uh, I, but then, you know, to me, that is, uh, and to many philosophers as well, that is really problematic idea because consciousness is completely different from the underlying neurons. It's a completely different thing. And usually when we talk about emergent properties, we're talking about something that emerges uh, uh, from something which has a similar kind of nature. Yeah, the nature is not completely different. So a wave emerges from water. That's a kind of emergence. But the wave still consists of water. It still has, you know, it's still similar in a certain way to water. It has a relationship to it. But consciousness has no relationship at all to matter. Yeah, there's no, no, there's no relationship. So this is called strong emergence. And actually, it is a very unscientific idea. It's not really scientific at all that something can emerge like that. And I would say the same thing is true for the idea of free will. Yeah, we are dealing with a whole world of conditioned phenomena. All these conditioned phenomena are kind of working on each other. And there is no scope for that liberty in there. Once you say that there is free will, it's like you are <coughs> adding a different kind of phenomena to all this cause and cause. Uh, and there cannot be an explanation for how that different phenomenon can emerge from condition, uh, all these conditioned phenomena. And so I would say it's, it's a similar problem as consciousness evolving from matter in the same way it is uh, having the idea of free will emerging from conditioned phenomena. To me, it seems like, uh, it seems like a miracle. It doesn't seem like a, a realistic proposition, if you know what I mean, because it's a completely different idea and it comes from a different place. So. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that, but uh, let's say on the <laughs> analogical level, if we, if we just, um, because that was more like a um, example that uh, from this neurological perspective, but let's say the kandas it said themselves, like uh, the kandas might have this thing that on certain uh, levels of complexity, they are completely determined, but uh, when the sentient being arises, then the kandas themselves might create this chaitana that has the element of volition and i'm not abhidhamma specialist uh, so uh, but uh, ajan punyadamo in his talk says that exactly this is how abhidhamma understand it that the that the kandas at certain point of when the sentient being arises then the chaitana is this element of has this element of volition i don't know if it's free will or not to, to that extent but uh, do you think it's even possible or um, or what would Sutta says about it is there there um, or is it just some like fantasy of self that we just wish to grasp on this 
some some idea of freedom. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I did, we didn't actually listen, both when Karunika and myself, we did listen to uh, Ajapino Damo's talk. And I, to be honest with you, I didn't find it all that convincing, to be honest with you. And he was going on about the, uh, you know, the Chetasikas, the, the mind moments and the Abhidhamma, how we get to the job. And I thought about the job and our mind yes. moments being big moments of Chetana, and that's where he was arguing free will comes in at that point. But uh, I honestly, I, I didn't think that there was any really compelling uh, argument there. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's open to debate, but I don't think there was anything strong evidence that brings in uh, and why the Javana moments can also be entirely conditioned. I don't see any, uh, any real uh, problem with that. And to me, far more interesting is, uh, you know, I mean, you have, I know you have discussed this with Bukharunika already, it's like the Anatalakana Sutta, staying with the suttas, uh, and where it says, and you mentioned this yourself before, that choices, uh, I cannot have my choices be like this, I cannot have my choices not be like that. I cannot have my will be like this, I cannot have my will not be like that. I cannot have my, in these are just different translations for Sankara, I cannot have my intention be like this, I cannot have my intention not be like that. So all, all these things we call Sankaras, which are the will, the volition, the intention, the agency inside. Sankara means literally means to create, right? It's the karoti to make, sung together. It's like the creative activity. All of that, you cannot have it any, you cannot choose how to have those things are. And that means that your choices, if you cannot choose them, they have to be conditioned. Yeah, there is no kind of scope, there is no space, there is no um, room to put in any independent phenomena, yeah? They would have to stand outside of nature, outside of the five khanda somehow. And uh, you are making an argument that, that the Pugalavad is talking about the Pugala, and so maybe, maybe something stands outside of it. But uh, remember the Buddha says it is enough to uh, focus on the five khandas. And if you focus on the five khandas, you can fully understand non-self. You don't need to focus on the Pugala. You don't need to focus on anything apart from those five khandas. That is sufficient to understand the idea of non-self. And so uh, the idea of an emergent phenomenon, again, does not seem to be, uh, to, to, as far as I can tell, it, it, uh, yeah, I don't, to me, it doesn't make any sense, then put it that way. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, thank you. I will just add that from my perspective, that being just a lay person who learns here and there, uh, I, I, and I noticed that in Theravada world, there are different agents that, uh, different teachers that, uh, understand these things a little bit differently. I, I've, I think I've noticed that in Bodhinyana monastery, Ajahn Brahm, you and others in general have this view that Anatta is like complete conditioning of everything, that this free will is just an illusion and that it's a part of the process to realize that. And it is very conductive to the path. It's the path part of right view. And on the other hand, we have these agents like Ajahn Punyadamo, Ajahn Sona, who puts more emphasis on this, uh, actually, um, uh, yeah, this, this volition that is, uh, the, the main thing in Buddhism that you really need to make right choices. Like you said, the Ajahn Punyadamo finds that in this, uh, Jaiwana, Jawana, in, in this Chetasikas. For example, Ajahn Sona says that life is a game that must be played, that even though uh, we, we, we must make choices that, uh, even if we don't make a choice, it's a choice. So they, 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 they put an emphasis on this aspect yeah. of, of will that is, uh, and yeah. 
Yeah, so I just say this for the for the record uh, that there are both I, I, interpretations. Sure. I, I, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm hogging. I will, when Maturica can come in in a, in a minute, but I would like to respond to that one as well, because I, they are right. I, I don't disagree with Adam Sona and Adam Pirodamo about this, you know. We have to make choices, and we have to make the best possible choices. And as you say, not making a choice is also a choice, right? So if you decide to lie in bed all day, that's actually, that's a bad choice, right? It's not going to work, nothing is going to happen. So choices actually are very important. Choices are really, really matter, because the choices determine our future, yeah? The choices determine our ability to practice the Noble Eiffel Path. The choices are about Kamma. The choices are ultimately about whether you're going to attain Nibbana or not. So choices are incredibly important. And what that means is that you should, we should always very carefully consider everything we do. I, I used a very interesting simile recently. It's a simile like crossing a road, yeah? If you come to a road and there's lots of cars going... What do you do? Do you look left and right, or do you just walk straight into the road? Well, you look. <laughs> you look, right? Because, because you know that if you don't look, you're gonna, probably going to die, right? Because someone's going to drive. So, of course, you look, right? And that is because you have mindfulness at that moment. You know that you are in a really dangerous position. And, uh, and what we should do, we, should, we think that walking into the road is dangerous, but much more dangerous in this life uh, is to make bad choices. That's much more dangerous, uh, because that is going to have really, really long-term effect. So every time you are about to say something, every time you are about to do something, you should look left and right, first of all, right? You should think, danger, danger, the cars are coming, yeah? My life is going to be turned upside down. Every time you think something, you should look left and right, first of all, because this is far more dangerous than crossing that Blumen Road. If you cross the Blumen Road, okay, you might die, but death is not the problem. It is how we live our life that is the problem. That is the real issue now, yeah? And so choices are incredibly important. That, that is what life is about. And the idea is to tell and explain the Buddhist teachings in such a way that we have really powerful mindfulness, mindfulness that guides us in all our choices. And this is the conditioning that comes from Buddhism, yeah? Tell you, be careful for goodness sake. Do you want to be mis have a miserable life or do you want to be happy? If you want to be happy, choose with care. So I don't think there is any contradiction there between the lack of free will and the importance of choices. They actually go together very well. It's just how we understand where that will comes from. That's the only difference. Yeah, thank you. And from the practical perspective, there is this danger that when someone thinks that, yeah, everything is conditioned, there is full anatta, then I think that it might lead to, you know, oh, then I don't have to practice because everything is conditioned. <laughs> <laughs> so, how uh, some few words about how to avoid this pitfall in have, where having. How do you make that? Even though uh, I know that you are like great monks and nuns in uh, like Buddhist society of Western Australia. So, how do you make that? Even though you have feeling of not having free will, uh, that you are so diligent in your practice, and because I think uh, the the motivator is like having this feeling that we have some choice that we can make a difference that I like, yeah, I choose like the path of Dhamma and that, that's why I have this motivation to practice. So how, how would you respond to that? Okay. Um, I don't know whether in Poland, what's the most popular sport? Is it soccer? Probably, yes. Yes. So what, what do you think when a soccer player is in the game? 
do you think that they really think their moves or do they very you know act yeah, very they, quick what do you think very quickly yes <laughs> yeah it's practice right and what do the soccer players do all year round they practice, practice over yes. and over and over again so they know the various moves for various you know things that they you know how they react to various actions so that is why the buddha says in the suttas again and again bhavana bahulikata in pali that is you cultivate and you make it much of it again and again you practice so that is why it's called practice you also call we are practicing we are meditating right so this is how it is so this is the thing so when our mindfulness is very low it is hard to know which conditioning will kick in because we have been in this samsara for a long long time so we have a lot of conditioning like if there is a certain situation a way that we are receiving the world a sight that's in front of us or a sound that's that we are hearing we have experienced these things many times and we have received many different conditions to respond to it right so all of that baggage is with us but whichever way that we have responded more in the past is how we are going to respond if our mindfulness is low and a lot of the times in samsara before we have come across the teachings of the buddha our conditioning is based on raga dosa shohari greed hatred and delusion so a lot of our now i'm not saying everything there are good and bad but there are many unskillful responses right this is the one that we are most concerned about but this is how we have done things not just this life many lifetimes and also the people that we see this is how they respond the movies that we watch the things that we read we hear if this happened to you this is what you should do we are even being taught like that so because of that if the mindfulness is low you just respond just like the soccer player in the game right so if anything <laughs> the idea of free will comes in when there is mindfulness but it is not free will it is again mindfulness brings on and reminds you the good teachings yes reminds you if you act unskillfully the danger what will happen to you the consequences right karma rebirth all of those things comes in also with practice you have spent time to find out skillful responses for you you realize there is a choice your choice is conditioned so you condition your choice in a skillful way you can learn from your mistakes you can look back this is called pachavekkana right pachavekkana jnana is a very important one so you reflect back i mean this is not the very high level of pachavekkana but in your general life too how do you normally respond to things and pick up the ones that are unskillful and then see what would be a skillful way to respond to this and this is all given in the suttas about various tactics methods to use so then you have to sort of first learn it then retain it memorize it mentally inspect it whether it's right or wrong and once it becomes a view that you realize this is a good thing to do this is how you, how i want to do when you are convinced when you are inspired to do it 
you will do it. And it again takes time. That's why you make mistakes, but later on you realize, oh, I missed it. You know, I should have done it like that. After a while, next time you realize, okay, I'm not going to do it. So you do it. After you've done the right way for a little while, you recondition yourself. Then it's almost like automatic. Next time it happens, you respond in the good way. So this is how it goes. So that is why it's called practice. So as monks and nuns or lay practitioners, whoever who's on the path, we start from where we are with our defiled minds, with all our past baggage, way of functioning. And one of the first things that we need to do is not just sit down and meditate, which is what some people think they should do, is to really find out who are, what, what are, what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. That is why the Buddha's beautiful instruction to his seven-year-old son Rahula in the Ambalatika Rahulova, the Sutta, is like using a mirror. Use a mirror, reflect. Mira is to reflect yourself and reflect your mind and see what's there. Then you know what your past habits, ways of responding. And then there is the instruction, you know, act in a way that is not hurtful or harmful to yourself and others. Then you figure out sometimes it's by mistake that you understand what to do and what not to do. So then slowly, slowly you change, but it is still conditioned. But you need mindfulness, and this is why mindfulness is so important. That is why, you know, the, the seventh factor, satipatthana, is so important to, to guard the mind, to restrain the mind, to make the mind really powerful so that it can calm down and enter into samadhi and then go to the next level of cleansing or purification or, 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 or reconditioning. So, when we are unmindful, it is really, you know, unmindful people really don't have a, a free will or a choice. But mindful people, you can to some degree say, it feels like you have a free will. It's still not free will. It is the new conditioning kicking in, which makes you feel like that. And yes, this is yes. where we sometimes think, oh, this intelligent person, this person who's been practicing, why they did this to me? why they did this hurtful thing. They could do better, right? Because of our projection, they should know and all that. But if they did like that, you know, okay, they haven't really practiced or they haven't really cultivated those qualities that they know. They're still wherever they are. And it's like that for monks and nuns too. Different places we are strong, different places we are still weak because there are some momentums that are pretty strong and you have to work with them. Uh, that's really how I see it and my contribution. I Does Thank it make you so sense? much. Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that's exactly, you know, this is, I think, a very important distinction is the idea of the conditioning coming from the past and then also the conditioning coming from the present. It's, you know, when we talk about conditioning, we don't just talk about conditioning from the past. But we also talk about conditioning right here and now. And that is where mindfulness comes in, like when Karunaka is saying. It allows a new conditioning to emerge in the present and then affect all the conditioning from the past. And that kind of, again, it broadens out the idea of what it means for something to be conditioned. Yeah, And you, you bring a, an opportunity to, to change the the habits or the forces from the past to change that in the present. Yeah, mm. it's nice. Mm. I, I also want to say a very like a very mundane kind of uh, thing. Like for a diabetic, eating chocolate cake or ice cream isn't good, right? So you know what what's going to happen to you. 
But at a time when your mindfulness is low, when you are suffering or you know something like this, you momentarily forget and you start eating. So you can't restrain, you are unrestrained about it. This is just a very mundane thing. And there are other times your mindfulness is up, you are much more alert, you are more careful and you remember and you have enough strength in the mind to restrain. So this is this goes all the way to everything. This is where even speech that comes out that is hurtful for somebody, actions that come out from us that is hurtful or harmful for somebody. Why at times we can restrain and why at other times we can't. And that is where we feel like we had a choice and we didn't do it and we blame ourselves. But all we can blame ourselves is for, if anything, is not keeping up our mindfulness. If our mindfulness is down, we really go along with whatever the previous habits are. If our mindfulness is up, that is where the path really helps us to make good choices. So, but that still is conditioned by the teaching of the Buddha. Right. So, you know, yeah. that's really. But, you know, and exactly. And the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the thing that, and I think you mentioned this already, uh, Piotr, is this, uh, or Ben Makarulika mentioned that as well, the feeling that you, you feel like you are in charge. You feel like you're making choices, right? Uh, and we cannot get away from that feeling. And as long as that feeling is there, then we have to use that feeling to the, to the you know, to actually help us on the path. Yeah. It, especially as when Karika is saying, especially when you are mindful, you really feel empowered because you feel that now I can choose properly. If you're not mindful, it's much more difficult, but certainly when you're mindful. And so we use this ability we have or this feeling we have that we are choosing. We use that in a skillful way. To actually increase the, you know, the, the process of the path unfolding in the right way. And so we, uh, we, we, we are, we're, we are realistic about what's going on. We're realistic about how it feels to live in this world. And then we use those feelings in a positive way. Yeah. Thank you so much. That really makes a lot of sense. And it brings me to the next thing. Uh, um, because, uh, of, on the developing of the Buddhist path, we have to deal with various skillful perceptions. Uh, certain perceptions are useful in certain circumstances. And I think what can be confusing for people is that uh, perhaps anatta is having both uh, inspiring and, uh, let's say, perception. And on the other hand, it's, uh, it's, its reason is to cause nibida, which is like disenchantment. And I will give examples for the two things. So... Starting with uh, inspiring, I think what is inspiring about anatta is that uh, when you really realize everything is conditioned, then you just need to put yourself in the right conditioning, like uh, the teachings on Kalyanamitta, associate with wise people, just associate with the Dhamma, and slowly, slowly, if you practice, you will get results because it's anatta, it's, it's just conditioned. So I think it can be very nice perception because... Uh, Sometimes I think people deal with the problem that they don't believe in themselves, that maybe others can realize the path, but not me. I'm, I'm too weak. I'm too scared. I'm, you know, and, but if you just think, yeah, it's, you just need to condition yourself. Just okay. associate with uh, Kalyanamitas, uh, just, just, just follow the instructions and you will get there eventually. So I think this is this inspiring perception of Anatta. But on the other hand, I think the Buddha used it also in the way that to produce Nibida because uh, I will give an example uh, that I had a few times in my life uh, and experience. And also, um, 
I will just give some background. I think uh, if you contemplate a lot that all your thoughts and you, all your will, all your khandas, all your uh, sense spheres are just conditioned, anatta, just just like appearing. For example, if you watch your mind thinking, then you can feel that, uh, find out it's not really <laughs> your, your choice. I can give an example. Let's say that... Uh, I, I, I say, please imagine that a dog is walking into a room and then please notice what is the race of the dog, what is the color of its fur and stuff like that. And you didn't choose which, which dog, what chosen that, uh, what kind of dog entered. I just said, please imagine a dog entering, but it appeared somehow. So it wasn't your choice. It's just your mind creates it on its own. And when you start observing that, for example, when you start observe your like your thoughts, you can notice that they are just auditory sensations. For example, talking, yes, yeah, it's like that. Maybe it's not like that. And you can find that there are actually many voices. So which one are you? This, that, probably neither. And then you you really start to see that this is actually like anatta. And, uh, and when you contemplate this a lot, I had this experience. For example, I had two experiences. One was when I was taking a walk. And then I had this experience when... Like I wasn't controlling my my walking. It just was happening on its own. And I was just observing like the body does walking on its own. Usually people feel that they are walking, but actually you ha can have a perception that it's it's just going on on itself. But the second one is more more interesting because I was watching a game like, uh, you know, these esports, like like soccer, but on the computer players playing and uh, and stuff like that. And, and there are these commentators that are saying things. Oh, he's doing this. He's doing that. And when you really engage into it, you are like in this engagement in watching the game. But then this anatta perception kicked in. Like, actually, these are not people playing. These are just conditioning processes that are soulless. There's just sensations. And when then, when you perceive that, that this game loses all its sense. When, there is no one playing, then it's like, why do I watch this? It's just completely senseless. And that's mm -hmm. where I had this anatta perception. And I think that Buddha was pointing to that, that this is Nibida, that when there is no one there, it just loses its uh, fuel for craving. And that's what I think Ajahn Chah said to Ajahn Brahm when he said this story that uh, Ajahn Brahm has the deep meditation. And Ajahn said to him, uh, Ajahn Brahm, nobody's there. <laughs> Do you understand? He said, yes. Ajahn just said, no, you don't. But he was like trying to sell nobody's here. And I think this perception, nobody's here, actually leads to, I think its reason is to cause Nibida, that disenchantment with, with samsara. So I think this can be confusing for people that on the one hand, Anatta has this inspiring perception. Yes, you, this is just conditioned, so you can just associate with Kalyana mitos and you will make it. But on the other hand, the same thing has the different function of actually causing Nibida. So if you could please comment on these perceptions of anatta that we use in our practice, if you agree with what I say, on these practical perceptions, uh, I would be very grateful. I also have a story to share. Okay. And then a few things. This was when I was a lay person quite a long time ago. There was a day that I have gone to Bodhinyana Monastery where I Brahmis and I have spent pretty much the entire day from morning till evening meditating. It was very peaceful, very nice, a really nice day for me. So I was really peaceful. I came home. 
And at home, there was some issues. There was a, one of my cousins and aunties, and there was a very heated discussion. <laughs> Something quite uh, unpleasant has happened, and there was a big, big heated discussion happened. And I got also quite emotional, and with emotion, I was speaking things quite firmly and strongly at that time. At that time, I felt my mind kind of split into two. And there was this one part of my mind watching the whole thing, especially what I am saying. And my mouth was speaking. And it was very clear I was not thinking. The words were coming out and the watching mind was kind of shocked at the words and the sentences and the, even the content that I was saying. It was as if they pressed a button and a recorded speech just came out to that situation. It's really interesting when that happens also, you realize, my goodness, you know, certain things happen. We have gone through samsara, all kinds of possible experience that can be, that is to be had. We've had them over and over and over again. And we've responded in so, in similar ways. And once that's triggered, it just comes out. But at the time, if, if that didn't happen, you feel like you chose to speak like that and you chose your words and tone of voice and everything. But when, when you know, because it was very peaceful, I think that's why it happened. So again, I can relate to what you were saying about, you know, sometimes if you've been meditating and been peaceful, then, you know, sometimes you your mind just observer and the action just splits up and there's distance. Yes. See this. So it's really beautiful when that happens, especially when you see the speaking. It's even because you feel like I'm the one who thinks about what I'm going to say and I'm going to say it. But you know, it's interesting. Um, so that's just about the experience. Uh, but with the perceptions, what was your specific question about? The question, first question was about the positive perceptions of anatta. Right. Of it, you know, it means that then you have to have a Kalyanamitta has become a hundred percent of the holy life mm. and these kind of things. And, and so I would say, yes, it, indeed, it is, you know, once you have an idea of non-self and anatta, at that moment, you start to use this idea in ways to enhance the practice. Yeah. So what you're saying is exactly right. And you can use it in different ways. You can use it in positive ways, as you say, and you can use it in negative ways. And it doesn't matter. As long as it is helpful for the practice, we can use these perceptions. But the more, you know, the more deeply you appreciate the idea, if you really think there absolutely is no self, the more power it's going to have in your practice, right? If you think there's a little bit of free will, there will be a little bit holding back. You won't actually give yourself fully. But if you have a full, complete, wow, there is no self, then it can become very, very powerful perception to use. And the idea with Kalanamitta is a classic example of that, because if you are entirely conditioned by the world around you, it's actually scary. Yeah, it's really, really scary, because it means that you don't know what's going to happen next. In your next life, you grow, you grow up in a mafia family. In your next life, you're conditioned by completely different people. And because we have the feeling inside that we have choice, uh, it means that we don't fully understand how conditioned we are, how easily we are led astray, how easily we go down the wrong, the wrong hateful path. Yeah, all the wrong factors. Uh, and then destroy our life, destroy the life of other people and all of these kind of things. Uh, so actually, it really makes the things very urgent. Uh, and one of the things that it does, which is incredibly important, it, 
Excuse me. It uh, makes it very clear the importance of the first factor of the noble eightfold path, which is right view, right? Right view certainly becomes this uh, uh, incredibly important thing because right view is the conditioning thing which makes the whole eightfold path happen. Uh, and that right view, well, how does it happen? It happens only through brainwashing. You have to be brainwashed, right? Because if everything is conditions, then everything is brainwashing. Brainwashing, either you get brainwashed by bad things or you get brainwashed by good things. But once you understand that everything is about brainwashing, yeah, you make sure that you get good brainwashing because you understand how critical it is. Yeah. So you come back to the suttas again and again and again. You try to really understand what they are about, just like we're trying to do today. Yeah. This is a beautiful discussion because it allows us this opportunity to really delve into the depth of the suttas. It would come back to these things again and again and again because we understand how incredibly important it is to get that right view as a foundation. And the only way you get it is through the brainwashing of the word of the Buddha. And so this is a very powerful and positive way of using the idea of, uh, of non-self. And I really agree with that. And then an another example, you want to give an example? No, no, me? Okay. Another example is the one that Bengal Karunika was using before, which we have discussed many times, uh, the idea that, uh, like you mentioned as well, Piotr, about, uh, you know, if someone is fully conditioned, how can we get angry with people, right? Uh, in fact, you understand that if someone does something bad because they are fully conditioned, uh, they are creating suffering for themselves and they don't understand that they're creating suffering for themselves and they are compelled, they are forced by these habits of the past, by all the things in the past, to do bad things. And it's kind of terrible when you look at it in that way. And actually, not only do you not get angry, but as you say, you get compassion because you see these people are trapped in these bad habit patterns and it opens up your heart in a very beautiful way to the world around you. People who used to be your abusers used to be your tormentors, people who used to don't like because they treated you really badly. Suddenly you see them in an entirely new way. You see them as victims rather than perpetrators. Instead of them being the perpetrators who do bad things towards you, they are victims of their own conditioning. They are victims of their own personality. They're victims of their own habits. They're victims of delusion. Delusion is like the root thing that makes everyone victims in the world. And then you start to understand that actually the world is not divided into victims on the one hand and perpetrators on the other hand. The world is like that. Everyone is perpetrator. Everyone is victim at the same time. We all oppress each other. Why? Because we move in this kind of con conditioned kind of field, everyone conditioning everyone else, right? And then you start to see the world in a far more realistic way because that actually is... Uh, to my mind, how the world works. Everyone is a victim. Everyone is a perpetrator. Everyone does things sometimes that are not really right because of the cause and conditions, because of the habits of the past and all of these kind of things. And that becomes a very, very powerful way of having compassion in general for the whole world, right? All the animals, all the spirits, all the human beings, uh, everything really, yeah, for, uh, and, uh, but if you don't take that fully on board, maybe you will fall back a little bit for the full compassion then. And what I, I would like to add for here is um, the Buddha's teaching in the blessing chant in the Mangala Sutta. The first one is the most important one usually, right in a sequence. Asevana Chabalana Panditana Chasevana. So don't associate the fools 
sometimes it's nice to think oh, don't associate the idiots <laughs> it's kind of funny <laughs> and associate the wise it's very profound and and the other thing i want to mention <laughs> is the the four sotapatti anga that is if somebody wish to become i mean somebody wants to become a stream enterer when you're practicing there are four uh, factors that are helpful that are necessary the buddha says a few in quite a few places and first one is sapurisa sansevana that means association of the noble ones uh, second one is saddhamma savana that means listening to the good dhamma third one yoniso manasikara that is the wise attention and fourth one is dhammanu dhamma patipatti applying the teachings uh, proper, uh, into your life yes so when you look at this uh, sapurisa sansevana that is association of the the uh, noble ones and the teaching here is a good teaching sometimes you think what's the difference you know it seems like the whole purpose of associating your kalyana mitra or your good teacher is to hear the dhamma so nowadays you have internet you have books you have all this so do you need the kalyana mitra is that really important because you know the teaching and the buddha is never superfluous right so i was thinking why you know true at the time of the buddha there was mostly oral tradition so you did need somebody to say but it's much more profound than that because sometimes it's not only a aryan that would say you know somebody who's not a aryan can still recite the rememorize the chanting and say it to you so then you have the teaching with you but is that just enough for you to change no because we learn not only by reading and hearing the sutras but also being with people who practice it because we absorb and we get conditioned not only by hearing by seeing by feeling with all of those senses so it is really important <laughs> to associate with wise people we take a lot of this and this is where it's really important how we live our life now i also want to tell you the time that it became so apparent to me is i can tell you about my own weakness one of my weaknesses i am not a very good listener it's really really hard for me to listen i very quickly interrupt <laughs> even ajahn brahmani also even ajahn brahm sometimes they are talking i get impatient and i cut them out and start talking this happened and i was very afraid even this might happen today <laughs> so Ajahn, if I do that, do, you know, give me a tap or do something to stop me, because I don't want to do it because it's not a good thing. But it's a very strong speech habit. Strong speech habits or any kind of strong habits hard to break because his speech is very quick, right? Speech is very quick, and like I said before, these are. habits so they come kick in but i i realize this is not a really good thing because it is hurtful for the person who's listening and it is difficult to you know do anything together it's it's got many bad things in there so it's good to allow people to finish and not to interject like that but i knew i did all the research i read everything that's available on internet about right right listening and all of those things read all the sutras about it everything so i know all the information about it 
still I can't do it. And I feel terrible every time when I do that. But I feel like this is funny. It's like a plate of poo coming and slapping on my face. I feel terrible. I, I did it again. I, it's terrible feeling. So then what I did was for a few years, I continue to observe people who are good listeners. Right? How, how do they listen from a distance? And one of them is Ajahn Brahmali himself. Like he's a good listener. So I would from time to time watch when he speak to somebody else or even when he's speaking to me. It's hard when he's speaking to me because I'm very engaged, but it's easier to watch when he speak to somebody else. There are a couple of nuns at our monastery who are also really good listeners. So I watch and then I realized after a while, I became a little bit better listener. I'm still not really good, but better than I was. So th then I realized how important it is that habits that you learn from associating people and, and uh, good people. And uh, the other way around is really bad as well. So then I can't blame myself for my speech habit because also it's conditioned from who I associate because this is how either my parents or teachers or friends, how they do things. And that's how I do things. So, so when you realize this again, because we get hurt, right? When, when we are, when somebody cuts us out or, you know, we feel like we're disrespected. Sometimes these are strong habits. They didn't really intentionally want to do it, but they couldn't help it. So this is again, making that point of, you know, conditioning and how this brainwashing is two steps. It's not just right view by learning, but living with people who perfected the right view and, or at least doing it in a, in a good way, uh, is conditioning as well. So it's quite beautiful to know that. Yeah. Powerful. You know, isn't it good, Piotr, that I introduced you to Venerable Karunika? Isn't that a good, good thing? <laughs> it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a special extra Dhamma. It's actually not, not that many, you know, not that many nuns who are so willing to give Dhamma talks and things. So this is a very, and she's also very skilled. So it's actually a yeah. very positive. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I would like to, I say some more on this, uh, this subject, Piotr. <coughs> Because you were talking about the negative perception of uh, non-self yes. and how yes. it like this. And I want to say something about that. Uh, um, and I think you're making a very interesting point, a very important point, actually. Uh, when you take the sense of self out of things, uh, suddenly they become empty. They become meaningless. Yeah, There's no point anymore. Uh, that's a very interesting, uh, in very interesting point of view. And, uh, you know, this is why we have this very powerful desire to exist. Uh, this is why we have this very powerful idea of living in the future. Because when there is a sense of self, that is meaningful to exist in the future. Yeah, because a sense of self has value. The sense of self is something that actually we want to look after because it has value. And that's why we want it to exist in the future. But the moment you take the sense of self out of it, the value is gone. And suddenly existence in the future makes no sense anymore. Why should I want to exist in the future? Just to have more dukkha, just to be reborn in some terrible realm or whatever, it makes no sense. Yeah. And this is a beautiful way of uh, undermining the kind of eternalist views. Yeah. Because the moment you take the sense of self out of it, uh, the whole eternalist idea falls, falls away. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, and because there is a lot of uh, eternalist infiltration in Buddhism these days, and it's very common, and it's to be expected because this is the natural inclination of the human mind is to kind of want the eternalist 
viewpoint. Uh, we actually need to use ideas, just like you are saying now. Actually, when there's no self, the whole idea falls apart and it becomes completely meaningless. Uh, and the best thing to do is just to end things uh, because that's the natural consequence of that kind of uh, viewpoint. Uh, Thank you so much, Venerables. First of all, I will say that Venerable Karinika, you're doing great because you haven't interrupted even once here. So <laughs> I think your practice is going very well. And, <laughs> and all you're saying is very beautiful. And we can agree that there is this a lot of uh, inspiring thing about Anatta perception. And thank you, Arjun Brahmari, for also <coughs> touching on this negative side because I want to f make a follow-up question on that. Uh, because, yeah, anatta is often presented in a compound with anicca and dukkha, but it's a little bit tricky because anicca, everything is impermanent, is clearly a negative thing. Uh, well, maybe not clearly, but in the suttas, it's like, yeah, it's not impermanent. So it's dukkha because nothing is satisfactory for, for, uh, forever. So anatta and he, the Buddha says, uh, so it's not worth to cling to it as me or mine or a self because it's Dukkha and Anicca. And so is Anatta actually another uh, thing that is Nibida? Like, yeah, Anatta, so it's like Anicca and Dukkha. So you pull away from Samsara. Or is this Anatta like, yeah, Anicca and Dukkha is sucks, but Anatta, yay, because it's not me, not mine. So, or is it both? Uh, so, uh, could you please expand on this perception of anatta if, uh, uh, if it's uh, for Nibida inducement or it's uh, inspiring in this way, in this uh, Tilakana, Anichadukhanata sequence, or both, or how do you see that? Okay, so uh, the, um, the, the fact that uh, something is non-self, you know, if, if things are impermanent and suffering, if it's non-self or self, it doesn't make any difference. It's still suffering. It's still, it's still problematic. You, you don't take the impermanence so seriously, perhaps, because it's not related to But the suffering is still there. And, you know, one of the interesting things about the suttas, even the Buddha, even the Arahants, they have a residue of suffering, you know. The Buddha says, my back is hurting. I have to lie down. So, obviously, the Buddha is hurting, right? His back is hurting. I have to lie down. And so, it's quite clear that even Arahants, even though they don't add anything to the suffering, it is still there. So, just taking, you know, just to make it non-self doesn't really, uh, doesn't really change anything. But the more important problem here is that uh, um, it, realizing non-self, actually, that can be helpful. Because when you realize non-self, it means that uh, you actually do have nibbida and you do actually distance yourself. But thinking non-self is not, not going to make much difference, right? Uh, you can think it, but it still feels like it is yours. And so it's not actually, it doesn't actually make any, any profound difference. And this is, I think, one of the really significant difference between the world of psychologists and philosophers. They will often say there is no self, yeah, because we cannot see any permanent thing inside a human being. So they will say that, uh, but they still have a sense of self. This is the paradox. They still have a sense of self, right? It hasn't actually done anything to them because it's not an insight. It's just a superficial view. And in the same way, if you just have a superficial view about non-self, it is not going to affect the uh, uh, the problem at all in terms of suffering or, or or impermanence or whatever. It's still going to be the same because it's not deep. It's just completely on the surface. And so it doesn't actually... Uh, so. Uh, it doesn't uh, help, and 
uh, yeah, let me let me stop there for now, and I don't know if Karika would like to add anything. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting how this uh, nibida actually works, because we do understand this intellectually, right? We understand to a large degree the suffering that is there in the world. We understand to a large degree things are impermanent. We we understand to quite a large degree uh, about even non-self aspect. But no matter how much we understand it intellectually, we still so much inside the central world let alone any other world, this is the world we know, we want to still experience, we still want to um, be born again. We don't want to die, at least, you know, uh, no matter. So why? What is the difference here? Because the Buddha says, if you want to look up, I think it is uh, the theme sutta is uh, five, Amrita Nikaya 525 or 526, one of those suttas the Buddha gives the reflection that actually completely uproot the asavas and the samyojanas and all of those is just the simple reflection that birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, and death is suffering. But we do it, we understand it intellectually, nothing happens, we still want to exist, we want to indulge in our sensual things. Why is that? The thing is, in our normal mind state, is that the hindrances are there, right? So once the hindrances are there, somehow the the idea doesn't penetrate through. But the very interesting thing is it's not just by words. One day this may happen to you. I'm going to tell you a story, that something that happened to me. Uh, it's not a very profound experience. It's profound enough for me to be able to say publicly because there are rules. So this, I, I, but it is still very helpful. So therefore, I'm going to say it just to understand how this nibida actually works. Is that okay? Yes. Yes. Please. <laughs> so this is when COVID first came, 2020. Right. This was at the time when the COVID was like really peaking, like lots of people were dying. This is the time in New York town, there were a lot of containers full of dead people. And, and, you know, there was this thing like we can't find a vaccine or it's going to take a long time and all of these impossibilities. And at the time when we were thinking the world's going to come to an end almost kind of, you know, at that, at that kind of time, at that time, that was just the day before my birthday and I have been conditioned since I was little by my parents to always celebrate my birthday so I always celebrate my birthday I celebrate everybody else's birthdays as well and so in the monastery they I also used to celebrate it so this this was the day before my birthday I knew because Australia was still in a bubble at the time the rest of the world was really going crazy but Australia we, we didn't have COVID yet so we didn't feel it much. So our kitchen was still preparing for my birthday and all that was happening. 
And but somehow I didn't feel quite okay when there were so many people dying to sort of celebrate the birthday. This was the only day that I felt like I'm in no mood to celebrate my birthday. So I felt like I should actually go and do a little bit of meditation at least, you know. And before that, I thought maybe, you know, what I should do is Karuna meditation. Compassion. After all, my name is Karunika. <laughs> so I should do no yeah. Karuna meditation. But I haven't really heard any instructions properly how to do it because metta meditation is the most common one. So I didn't know how to do this. So I had to figure out as, uh, how to arouse compassion in a, in a strong way so I can. And I thought there's a good time in the world. There's lots of suffering going on. Let me find out. So I actually looked a little, did a little bit of research to see what was going on at that time. And then I realized Australia has set aside at that time $72 million just to take care of people who are going to be the victims of domestic violence coming out of COVID as a result of COVID. Another $168 million for people's mental health effects as a result of COVID, just because of COVID. And suddenly I was shocked because I am a microbiologist and I understand about the significance of the virus and its problem and the health issues. And that was enough for me to think, wow, this is crazy. This is terrible. This is so much suffering and stuff. But I didn't see the next level. And suddenly when this came about, it went, you know, really strongly. It really affected me how much suffering even post-COVID that is going to happen. So I then sat down in the meditation hall and I, I sort of had this perception. This is a very interesting thing. I've never done this before. I don't know why I did it, probably past conditioning because nobody had taught me to do this and this is not my usual way of doing things. But I felt like I was a bird. I was a bird flying over the suburbs in a country where it's affected by COVID. Having read those two things about domestic violence and mental health issues and just knowing how the nature of people and household life could be at a stressed situation, economically deprived, scared about their life and all of that, I could see. And this was a bird who had extreme vision. So it's like, you know, as you're flying through, you could see what's going on in different houses. And it's like, you know, sometimes the mothers are not looking after their children who are infected, thinking that, you know, you will catch it. And I'm sure there were children who didn't look after their parents and treated each other so badly because they saw every single, you're even your loved one as your killer at that time, your murderer, because if you catch COVID, you might die. So I could see all of those kind of violent behaviors, all that in my mind's eye. And all of this, and then I was thinking, this is happening to people who are young, who are old, who are rich, who are poor, who are educated, uneducated, beautiful, ugly, who had big social, you know, contacts, who didn't have contacts, even the experts in COVID itself. Everybody was affected. Nobody was able to do anything. We were completely helpless. And when I saw that at that time, like my mind was really focused on this dukkha sanya, perception of suffering, really the suffering of human existence or suffering of a sensual world, being born, this is happening and this is unavoidable. It's not just COVID, there's so many illnesses, so many other things that happen to us all the time and is out of our control. And at that point, I asked the question, why? 
That was the time that I should have started. May all beings be well. May all beings be free from suffering because I could see and I had enormous, you know, kindness coming up. But my mind also asked the question, why? The moment it asked, when I asked that, the answer came, Jati P in Pali, because of birth. For the first time, I really understood why birth is suffering. Before, Old age, sickness, and death was very obviously suffering. Birth, well, birth is good because we enjoy a lot of experience. It's fun. We celebrate. When a baby is born, we all rejoice. And, you know, so why is birth so much suffering? <laughs> yeah, other things are suffering. But, you know, you understand when you talk about it. But this was a very strong, insightful moment. Once born, you're subject to all of these things, they're completely out of our control. So being just born in the sensual realm, either as animal or a human, so many things happen to us. We get conditioned by multiple causes and conditions. So this is another thing that sort of gives us that feeling of free will because our decision is influenced by multiple causes and conditions. It's not just our karma, which is our direct conditioning, but environment, pandemics, wars, all of these things, right? But we are once born, we're trapped by all of those things. So then suddenly, a huge disenchantment, a nibida came, wow, I don't want anything to do with birth, anything to do with existence, you know, at least in the sensual world, because I was really reflecting the dukkha of the sensual world. And when that came, because at that time, there were like the hindrances were so down because I was so focused on the perception of <coughs> perception of suffering. My mind was completely in that. So I can say temporarily, my hindrances were very, very down. And because of that, and the Nipida came, because it's the same thing, Jati Pidukka. And then the recitation came automatically into my mind, Jati Pidukka, Jara Pidukka, Maranam Pidukka. And that is, birth is suffering, uh, old age is suffering, death is suffering. These are the three things that came. And my mind just got really focused on these three things, the first noble truth. And it just stayed there. But what happened was before that, when I got the idea that Jatipi, like birth is suffering, I experienced the mind getting released, like temporary release from craving, craving dying out. So that is a moment of Nibida because of the growth of the perception of suffering. So why did it happen that time and why is it not happening to any one of us now? Why we are talking about it is right now some of the hindrances are still prevailing in our mind. So even though we understand it, our mind is not releasing. But at a time when the hindrances are down because it's focused on a perception that's true, it sort of releases. That's a, a, a form of Nibida. So yeah. And how much more it would be. This is just, you know, something much more simple. And this is really important to sort of enter into jhanas and stuff because sensual world is what sort of stops us from entering. But how much more when the hindrances are down and you get an insight into non-self, anatta, you know, that would be a big breakthrough. And, yeah. and, and so the nibida, how it happens kind of thing. So I just yeah. wanted to share. So, and yeah, 
First of all, I just want to say that the suit that you're talking about was Angurunika 557. Okay. 57. So if you want to put that into the uh, thing, if you can do that. But I wanted to say a little bit more about the, the downside of non-self uh, because uh, I wanted to add to that because I, my previous answer was not very good. Yours were much better. So I, I want to compete a little bit with Angurunika to make sure I, I reach the <laughs> Otherwise, you know, this is the nice thing. So, uh, uh, you know, one of the really... The problems or the kind of the ideas that underlie the sense of self is the idea of agency, right? This is exactly what we're talking about here, about free will and these kind of things. We have a feeling that we have agency in the world. We are able to control the world. We can decide to go for the happiness. We just have to find the, the right job and the right partner and the right education. And then life will be sweet yeah, because we, we have the ability to choose all the good things in the world. So there's a sense of agency in there. And that is, I think, what and this is actually one of the uh, kind of great delusions in life that we know. First of all, we think we know where happiness is. Of course, we don't know where happiness is. We have no idea. This is part of the delusion. And the second thing is that we think it is in our power to actually achieve that happiness because we have agency. But the moment you realize that that sense of self, actually, it is an illusion. Yeah, it is actually just cause and conditions coming from the past. It is just your habits from the past re-arising in the present. The moment you see that, you realize, actually, you, you, you don't really have any power. You're just kind of following in this flow going along, subject to suffering, subject to impermanence around at all times, without really having any kind of mastery of what is going on. And... Uh, let me tell you a story as well. I, I, I think when Karunika stories are really great. So I like, I think stories are very useful. Uh, this is another story. This is a story I heard from someone uh, uh, who was, he was an ex-president of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. And he, uh, he was a Catholic before he became a Buddhist. So this is kind of fits well with Poland, right? Many people are Catholic, uh, in, in, or ex-Catholics in Poland. Uh, and he was saying he went to this, uh, person who was a past life regressionist. Yeah. So he went to him and they, they regressed him and he started to remember something from the past. And he was telling all these things about, oh, I, in the past life, I was living in, I was really poor. I was living in Ireland and then I migrated to Australia. And when I migrated to Australia, I became a soldier and he could describe the, the costume he was wearing as a soldier, right? The, 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 um, What's it called? The uh, military attire, whatever you call it. Uh, and then he could got married and he had so and so many kids and his wife was like this. And then he had a farm, right? And he worked incredibly hard and he kind of built up this farm. It was incredibly successful, right? This farm. And then on his deathbed, he, he had this feeling that he died contented because he had done something worthwhile with his life. He built something up, right? Something really powerful. Right? And so that was his uh, his kind of recollection, and then he and then he uh, started to check this up. So he went into the records of Western Australia. Did such a person exist, like a poor migrant who had a wife like that, who worked for the military, who had so and so many kids, who worked on a farm like this and built a farm? And sure enough, he could find one such person who matched almost very very closely to what he uh, uh, to what he was looking for, right? Uh, and that's when it started to get really interesting for him because suddenly uh, he had this, he had never believed in rebirth before. He thought rebirth was nonsense, right? Uh, but now he was kind of faced. There was some evidence that was so powerful. He couldn't really negate it anymore, right? This is really, really powerful evidence. It's almost, you know, coincidence didn't really, it wasn't really possible because so many 
pieces were falling into place from his memory compared to the reality. But the really interesting thing is, and this is the interesting part, is that in this life, he's also a very hardworking person. He's very successful, right? And he always thought that, well, the reason for my success is because I choose of my free will to be hardworking, to carry on. Yeah, it comes from me. And now, for the first time, he realized it's got nothing to do with free will at all. It is his habit from a past life to be hardworking. That is where his hard work comes from. The whole feeling of free will, he understood, is a complete illusion in this game. And now he's just kind of carrying on the habits from the past. And once he understood that, he realized that his life is a trap. His life is just a, you're stuck in something. You don't understand why you're doing things in this life, but, but there's always a reason. And the reason is always very different from what you think. And so he thought he had to become a monk, right? Because this is crazy, but it's kind of madness to kind of follow along these ancient habits. But then he ended up with a wife and a child instead, right? Before he was able to become a monk, somehow he messed around and he did the wrong thing and then he ended up with a child. So he never actually made it as a monk. But that was the power of that insight, that feeling that now there's only one thing to do, become a monk. So I thought I would just share that with you to give it an alternative view. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you for the answers, for your uh, for sharing your wonderful stories. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, a follow-up question on that would be when I was hearing uh, Venerable Karunika um, story, I thought of Apanihita Samadhi, like, uh, you know, there is this desireless state that because of perception of Dukkha, I think commentaries put that when you have perception of Dukkha, then you have no desire and that brings this temporary release of mind. And uh, so I wonder about sunyata samadhi, because this is uh, theoretically related to anatta perception. Um, so uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, this term, like sunyata samadhi? Uh, does it mean that exactly you have this perception that Ajahn Chah was saying, there's nobody there, so you have nibida, and then you, your mind is temporarily released or released? Uh, can you speak uh, to some words about this? Yeah, the way uh, I understand it works is that you focus on the idea of uh, there is no self and there's nothing belonging to the self. Uh, this is how the Sunyata Samadhi, or the Sunyata is described in the Suttas. Yeah, there's no self, nothing belonging to the self. And I've, I've heard of people who actually have done this and they have entered some strange Samadhi, which is very unusual, which is different from the jhanas, for example. Uh, and they enter a realm based on that. Uh, and I know these people very closely, so they can, that's, that's kind of a, it's an interesting one. Uh, so all you do is you just uh, put that perception in your mind, uh, yeah, there is no self and nothing belonging to the self, and then bam, you go, if you're ready, you go into samadhi as a consequence. So just the perception idea. Okay. But is this yeah. related to this, um, what we're talking about, that there is uh, no agent, that there is no being in the samsara, it's just conditioned process? This is this perception which you cultivate to get there when you're ready? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's related to that. Uh, but uh, I think it's, you don't have to make it complicated. You can make it very simple. You know, All you have to say is that uh, there is no self, there is no I, nothing belonging to an I, and just a very simple perception takes care of all the other things, Yeah, the, the lack of agency, and all that kind of it gets included within that. Uh, because if it's going to be samadhi, it has to be simple, otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. 
depending on how deep it is, I mean, you can start out with a broader contemplation and narrow it down further on, or you can start with a breath contemplation, overcome the hindrances to metta, and then you can focus on this. So depending a little bit on how you do it, but the final thing has to be simple, otherwise it's not going to lead to samadhi. Huh? Okay, so we can sum up this uh, part that uh, anatta perception can be both uplifting and nibida-inducing in general, right? Yep. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, one more question, maybe more, but what, the one which comes to me right now is uh, when we have the stages of awakening, then uh, we have this that Sotapanna has no Sakayaditi, which is no self-view, and Arahant has no conceit I am. Uh, so uh, I would like to ask you about, uh, if you could tell, uh, does it mean that, for example, Arahant, uh, like Sotapanna just like has insight into no self, but he still has this feeling that the that I am the agent that makes choices and the Arahant doesn't have this feeling anymore. And one more uh, thing I would like to ask uh, about this is because we're talking about this feeling when we take a walk and you feel like you're not you're doing the walking. So does Arahant have like constantly this this feeling that it's not he doing all this, like it just happens on its own, like everything is just unfolding uh, if you could please tell something about this i would be grateful at least theoretically okay <laughs> so uh, the uh, yeah the, the difference is you know the often the mind is divided into three kind of aspects the views the perceptions and the thoughts these are kind of three levels of mind ditti chitta and sanya and uh, the thing that the Sakayaditi is about is all about the view level. So you have right view. So you see, you, you understand how the world is and you have a view about the world in the right way. So if you ask us, the sort of mentor, is there a self? They will say no, because the view is right. Yes, they will know that there is no self. But um, that knowledge has not yet penetrated all the way to the depth of all the parts of the mind. <laughs> so even though they know it, the habit from the path is so strong. Yeah. They will still think often in terms of they will feel I am, I exist. They will feel these things automatically until you ask them, and then they will remember oh, that there is no I. Yeah, so that the habit is actually very is actually the underlying habit there. Whereas an Arahant will never think in terms of I am, or never think in terms of uh, these things. Uh, and so the Arahant will, but still, it will, the Arahant will still speak in those terms. Yeah, it will still say I am going to the. I'm going to the forest to meditate. I was going to say, I'm going to the shops. That Maran wouldn't say, <laughs> say the shops. <laughs> so, uh, and so that, that is the case. And so, yes, when the Arahant is walking, I think exactly what you're saying is that feeling is just pure mindfulness. You are aware of what is happening. Yeah. But there is no sense of I am doing this. It's just cause and conditions coming together and now walking happens. Uh, yeah. So it's a kind of very free, very free mental state, uh, very free from this constraint of I am and things that are happening by themselves. Uh, and one of the things Arahant does not do precisely because uh, they have very little, they, have, they haven't got the sense of agency in the same like, way we have. Uh, yeah. They don't force themselves. They don't push themselves, right? Uh, they live in a very natural way because they don't use this force. The eye force is no longer there, which makes us do so many things. Uh, and so when they walk, they walk at a natural pace. Yeah? They, they look peaceful because things are natural. Uh, the whole conduct is very kind of, uh, even in a sense, right? we were just discussing one of the suttas uh, the other day. This is the Brahmaya Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya number 91, I think it is. Uh, 
And it's a beautiful sutta about the conduct of the Buddha. And his conduct is described. He doesn't walk too fast. He doesn't walk too slow. He doesn't come too close. He doesn't stay too far away. Yeah. When he puts on his robe, it doesn't, does it just natural? Everything is natural. Everything is easy. There's no sense of striving or trying or anything like that. Yeah. And it's a kind of a, when you see that, you can actually, it's like seeing something we're not used to seeing in the world. It's a very beautiful thing to see, yeah, because of the, nat the natural thing of this. Uh, and if you visit some of these great, even today, great meditation masters around the world, you get a glimpse of these things, yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a very kind of delightful thing to see that when you see that in other people. Yeah? And sometimes you see it in yourself, yeah, like you're saying, and then you have some insight into what is going on there. What I would like to add is, I mean, we would never really know it and it's not going to be possible to talk about it. You will have to experience it. But something that you can sort of extrapolate, if you have a little bit of experience with meditation, is something that you know that an arahant has ended is craving, right? They have ended craving especially for future birth, but they don't have craving. But that doesn't mean that they don't have um, chanda, like, uh, you know, uh, thing to, like, you know, they would say, I would go to such and such a village. Even the Buddha said, let's go to this village to give a sermon. There's, let's, you know, you know, do things. So, of course, the Buddha has this kind of intentions, but they're not like cravings. There is you know, intention or a chanda or a consent to do something. So what is the difference, right? For for anybody who is unenlightened, craving and the delusion of sense of self, I exist and I want. And it's very beautiful to watch your own mind. It's like our eyes constantly want to see things. Our ears are constantly want to go out to hear things. Our tongue always wants to taste things, smell things, you know. Yeah. We are constantly wanting experience. We want. And because of that want, we go out into the world through our eyes, through our ears, through our tongue, nose, body. We go out because there is that sense of self and the sense of self always wants, craving. Right, so it's really taking us out, and as you go out, we do things by body, speech, and mind, which can be skillful or unskillful, and it just produce more sankaras, more, and it, it just carries on. But imagine for a little while, especially if you've had some deep meditative experiences where craving has sort of temporarily died down. You have experienced a time when craving was minimal, not completely eliminated, but even when it's really down, you know, then you know it, it might, how it may be like, you know, and this is how an arahant would operate. It would be very, very different. That's why Ajahn was telling it's very natural. It's quite different to the way that a normal person would do. So even when you're walking, you know why Satisampajana, right? They know what for what purpose, why you're working, how you should walk in that situation. And you just do it because it's for you know, not not like uh, an unenlightened being. There is all these uh, invested uh, things in interests, you know, mm -hmm. and and you do things in a much different way. And it's a lot of the time it's to do with yourself, how other people will see you, my ego, yeah. it is right. All these things concerned with me because right. 
I am the kind of the, everything is connected to me, my and myself. That's how I perceive and relate to the world. All my actions, my thinking, everything is triggered by this core. But once that's gone, and then there is no craving because there is no self, they will be quite different. So if once you've had a little bit of peace with meditation, you could get a little bit of understanding maybe, and but you could never really know how it's like. But that's that's how I like to think about it. Okay, it thank sense. you. So um, <laughs> let's say that... Uh, because when I was in Janagru, my friend in, in the heart said to me that they are th exactly we're talking about these experiences when you have this sati that you feel like you're observing something happening, like you're walking, and but you're not really controlling it, just happens on its own. And he said to me, when you sit to meditate at this time, then the meditation really takes off. When yeah. uh, you have no control, it just happens on its own. And so I... What I wonder is if the Arahant has like this thing all the time, that just things feels like uh, everything just happens. And because what I've noticed when uh, we have these feelings of flow that we are just like observing what is happening, actually the mind becomes very peaceful. But when we actually try to make a decision, then the anxiety kicks in. So I wonder if uh, this anxiety is disappearing uh, from the Arahant because he doesn't really make choice it just happens is is it like like that like everything is just automatic uh, one thing i want to say ajay might correct me if i'm wrong uh, is that an, an, an arahan has a motivation for the action it's not like automatic or, or something like that they are motivation compassion <laughs> they're completely <laughs> actually motivated by compassion so compassion is the driving force for their intentional actions. So it's a very beautiful thing, right? So compassion and um, the anxiety wouldn't be there, but there is. It's not like it's kind of random, just happening. It doesn't make sense, right? Okay. They do very meaningful things. They Whatever actions they do are meaningful and kind of wholesome. They don't do useless things and, uh, you know, unmeaningful things and unskillful things. So all of the actions by body, speech, and mind are very mindful and, uh, you know, intentional things. But where is that coming from? Motivated by compassion. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, that's obviously a very important point. Um, you know, one of the qualities of Arahants and the Suttas is that they are aparitasana. And paritasati is like uh, the idea of uh, uh, being anxious or being, uh, you know, shaking a little bit, this sort of thing. And so the, one of the qualities of the Arahant is that they have precisely no anxiety. They have no, you know, this is completely gone. And the reason why it is gone is because uh, anxiety is always about the future. Is the future going to be okay or is it not going to be okay? Well, the Arahant is not concerned about the future. <laughs> the future is irrelevant. I'm not going to be reborn, right? And what I do tomorrow is irrelevant because actually now I can meditate, now I can go into jhanas, I'm going to enjoy that. Tomorrow there's nothing interesting happening, but what is interesting happening right now, I can just chillax and have a good time, you know. So the future has become completely irrelevant. And the moment the future becomes irrelevant, 
Of course, there's nothing to be anxious about anymore. Yeah, so anxiety cannot really exist for the Arahant for that for that reason. And so it is just like you say when you have that kind of flow, right? The Arahant is always in flow because it's never striving, never using the sense of self. That means the moment you sit down and you watch the breath, because there is no striving, things just happen immediately. Yeah, you go into the some of the. Meditation to talk about going into jhana on one breath, but Ajahn Brahm, Ajahn Brahm says no need for even one breath. Yeah, you just kind of, if you're ready, bang, and you kind of you go off like that because the mind is so is so ready for these kind of things. And so, uh, yes, I think that is a is, is a one way, nice way of looking at it actually. Yeah. And as a meditator, this comes about, as you would know, if you are on long retreat and meditation is really taking off, is the time that Aj- what Ajahn Brahm calls as the beautiful breath state. Like when you reach, how do you know that it is the beautiful breath state? Is that beautiful, either if you are doing breath meditation or whatever object that it is, that it actually feels like Somebody else is doing it for you, not you doing it. Yeah. In the beginning, there is a feeling of you doing it. Even so passively observing, it, there is a feeling of you doing it. But when it comes to that beautiful breath state, that it, it, it is just before you enter the jhanas, before the nimitta starts to come. So it's really at the doorsteps of the jhanas is the time that this automatic thing, it's the non-self because you've practiced a lot and then your sense of self, all the hindrances have come down and you feel. So it's kind of, in a way, you can relate to that at, even during the meditation process as well, even before entering jhanas or even before nimittas, but just before they come, this, you know, uh, feeling, this is just another little bit to add to what you were saying about automatic yeah. <laughs> kind of non-self and the practice this is like the the football player or the soccer player in the game <laughs> already playing out but they have practiced mm. okay. yeah exactly so uh thank you for mm-hmm. that and uh one more thing is that uh i think uh let's talk about a little bit about control because i feel that when you have a lot of defilements in your heart then you must have control because you cannot just you know uh act out, let go of control, because then you will get angry, then you will get greedy, you may break someone's barrier uh, and stuff like that. But the more you are noble and your heart is more pure, the more you can let go of control, because then when you let go of control, then your heart expresses its purity. So uh, I think, uh, because for example, it's interesting that people who are often, uh, let's say they have lots of defilements, they really feel losing control. Because uh, like letting go of control feels like something bad will happen. But on the other hand, Ajahn Brahm says, when you want to really get into meditation, you must let go of control. You must let go of will and just let it happen. So I think that uh, perhaps in order to really let go of control, you must first purify your heart to right effort. So right mm-hmm. effort, you purify your defilements, you develop good qualities. And then when your heart is ready, you can let go of control because you can trust your heart that... When you let go of control, it will do the right thing. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, can you like comment on that a little bit? Is it is it correct thinking or? Uh, you know, something that became this something that I've asked Ajahn Brahmalia many, many, many times with my meditation interviews with him over the years is the meditation psychology. 
you know, the Upanishad Sutta or the Nachetana Karaniya Sutta, and I always tell him, oh, why? I mean, I start with joy and it goes to, you know, piti. Uh, but then it doesn't go any further sometimes. You know, if, if the sequence works, every sit, if I start with joy, non-regret, first of all, and then with joy, I should end up in jhana every sit. But why? You know, this is what you're saying, you know, you purify your heart, so you have no remorse, and you say it, so the natural thing, because it says, no, na chetana karaniya, means no uh, will must be exist, right? no effort must be put in, or no, no, yeah, to, to be done, it is not to be done, you just don't have to do it, it happens, it's passive, so, so you do experience, to and it doesn't go further. So he keeps telling me how to purify your sila, purify your sila. So I see that's very good. But the thing is, later, when you actually look at that sutta, it's sutta is, is for noble ones. It actually, the sequence fully works for somebody who's at least a string, you know, who's very quite sila, is parisuddhi. For others, it still works, but it might not take you so quickly and easily uh, to to jhana in a, in a quick way. That's why Ajahn Brahm says, oh, all you've got to do is just sit down and chill like that. Everything happens. Because when your heart is very pure, this takes off very easily. But for the rest of us, it, it will stop at places because you still have to purify your heart, like you said, and with view and all of that. So the more the heart is pure, the more right view you have, it will go further a lot more, is, is what I come to realize after after all these years you said right yeah <laughs> no, I, of course no, i fully you know of course i agree with it but I, and uh, and i think you you know one thing i'd like to add uh, Piotr, is that uh, yes you know when you feel you have a lot of uh, defilements in the mind and talking about you know you you want to feel that like you are in control because otherwise the defilements are going to be really ugly and everything is going to happen in a bad way but one of the important things, and this is one of the things I have always talked about in how to overcome the defilements of the mind, uh, and that is not so much through control, but through using wisdom instead. Uh, and this is one of the things, you know, what, that we have been talking about today, because if the, if there is no free will and the will is a kind of a, a weak thing anyway, and it's a really problematic, uh, then if we take on board the brainwashing from the Buddha, which is the wisdom, and we really understand that, uh, then actually the defilements start to disappear on their own. All you have to do is think in the right way. And when you think in the right way, uh, the mind is in the right place. And of course, if the mind is in the right place, then the speech and the body habits, everything else comes into the right place as well. Then. And then uh, this process starts to happen that uh, Bukharunika is talking about, yeah, because the, of the purity at the root of this whole thing. Yeah. And so uh, it is... Um, So it's important to kind of overcome the defilements in the in a way that aligns with the suttas. And you find the Buddha talking about this in many, many different places, how to use wisdom power, how to use wisdom to overcome defilements. And it's an important point because when we hear words like sense restraint, it sounds like we have to use willpower and all these kind of things. But usually when the Buddha talks about it, he talks about using wisdom, reflecting on the downside of these states. Um, uh, reflecting on how it leads away from Nibbana, uh, reflecting on how it leads to suffering for yourself and others, uh, uh, and these kind of things. And, uh, and of course, the reflections we talked about before about, you know, 
beings basically causing suffering for themselves when they do bad things, etc., etc. And then you can overcome these things and we can purify. So, so much of the part is about purifying yourself and about giving up defilements and problems. And I would say that that is almost everything there is, especially if you add the idea of renunciation. You also have to add renunciation as well, because otherwise it's not going to work. But purity of the heart together with renunciation is actually all you need. And once you have that, the meditation, everything will happen as a consequence. So this is that bhavana bhavalikata again and again doing this, mm. the practice. But this is the two powers that you famously always talk about: mm. the ba- power of uh, uh, the bhavana and patisankana bala and bhavana bala. Power of reflection and power of development. So just now, Bhante was telling about reflection. So that's also one force of con- reconditioning. To do the right thing, right? And exactly. mindfulness and yeah. reconditioning. Yeah. So you do that so that it kicks in at the right time. Right. So that's really, really important, especially at the start of the practice to do a lot of these reflections. The power of uh, reflection is incredibly helpful. And I don't even know how people could do without that to go much further. You know, probably using a technique, mm-hmm. get a little bit of stillness, but to really have a deep yeah deep inside and to go further in the path is almost impossible. Indeed. And, that, mm-hmm. and the other and exactly. And also the other thing with reflection is that it gives you a very strong foundation in right view. So you become more stable in your practice, even though you go through difficult periods or whatever, you're able to carry on because you have a foundation in right view, looking at the world in the right way. But if you don't have that right view, if you just meditate and you gain some happiness in your meditation, but then your meditation suddenly doesn't work anymore, yeah, or defilements come, you are going to give up. Why? Because you haven't got the right view which underlies this whole thing, which supports the whole practice. So having that, those reflections and right view are incredibly important for the long-term stability of your practice and your perseverance in, in these things. So. And I have something yeah. interesting yes, yes. to tell you. Sorry. Yes, go, go on, go on. Yes, go on. Very nice. <laughs> It might bring us back to where you started, but in a different way, hopefully. <laughs> or it might confuse you and we might sit here another three hours talking about <laughs> it. And I'm going to say it. Because you know how now we said we need mindfulness to make a change. And with mindfulness, we cultivate the path. We do the reflections. All of this is part of mindfulness and building up mindfulness and bringing that up to con- recondition. So then we also have been talking about how then it is all passive. Karni is a really good example of that. But that talks about a passive process leading to wholesome, to the end, to ending things. But the opposite is also true, which is interesting, which is what I'm going to say. In the sense, when you don't have mindfulness, then our unwholesome conditioning or whatever conditioning we have from samsara is also working in a passive way. So this is where sometimes people have this idea of fatalism. Like, you know, everything is fate kind of thing comes in. It's interesting because what happens, there are some premonition, for example. People have premonition. 
then you think, you know, then somebody saw what was going to happen in the a little ahead of the future, right? And I have a very interesting story, just because it's nice to tell stories, might confuse everybody, but I'm going to tell <laughs> it anyway for fun. I had a friend. Uh, he's uh, um, not a Buddhist, he was a, he's an Italian. And he was one day telling me the story that he had a dream. And in his dream, he was at his cousin's wedding. And it was a very clear dream. He had really good memory of everything. He remembers what he dressed, what his mother, his father, a lot of his aunties, uncles, the bride, the groom, what they dressed. And he remembered very clearly the speech at the wedding. And many other little things like those opening people coming, how they came, where they sat, who sat with who together, all of these details he remembered really clearly. But it was just a dream. His cousin hasn't got married or nothing has happened. So he just thought it's just a dream at the time. Six months later, it was his actual the cousin's wedding. And that is when he had a shock. All those things that he saw in his dream actually happened. Even the speech, the people who came through the doors, you know, all of these things. And he was like, he couldn't understand how that was possible. This was six months later. The speech, the person who gave the speech probably wrote the speech like a day or two before, right? And all these things. How is it? So, you know, there are things. This is how it is. The, our mind is like, you know, in the Sampasadhaniya Sutta, it is saying, you know, it's established in the sensual world and with whatever we are doing. And there is a certain trajectory. It's not always 100% because there are many other forces like, you know, environmental things and all of those things also affecting, but there is a certain. So it's not a given. It's not a, always 100%. In this future is never 100%. 100% predictable, but there is a way things are usually going. You could, you know, if you are unmindful, you are walking in the dark, in, in blindness, you know, with low mindfulness, then the conditioning just operates also in a very passive way as well, because you can't help it. So you can almost project because of the, that deterministic kind of thing, because it's conditioned. It's kind of really interesting to see how the opposite works. So it really brings home the idea of how important mindfulness is, you know, in this occasion without mindfulness, um, making a change, um, uh, enlightenment is not possible because we are completely trapped. You know, and uh, it's interesting. Anyway, I just wanted to say, I don't know what it will do to this discussion. You can delete it if it is not helpful. But uh, we were having a chat and this, this story came to my mind. So I thought I might as well. So what do you mean Say. is that we can predict the future in a way because it's conditioned really? It's conditioned. Not really, but I mean, it, future has, it's never 100% because it's multiple causes and conditions coming. For, for a short period, I mean, that's why the Buddha saw, like, Angulimala, for example, the way that it was going, he could see was going to kill his mother, for example, and probably end up doing a really anantari pavakama, like a really serious offense and end up in hell, right? So that, that much could be seen. 
but it could be intervened mm -hmm. as well. So this is the thing. Mm -hmm. So premature is not 100%, but there is a general tra trajectory where it's heading. We can see sort of where our life is going if we continue on like this. And, but of course, it's not 100% because there are other things as well. <laughs> it's not just your karma. It's not just, you know, so there are many things that influence. Yeah, that's interesting because I wanted to touch on that uh, on that a, a little bit as well because uh, I find it a little bit contradictory uh, because on the <laughs> one hand, you, let's say everything is determined, so some super mind could be able to predict the future, right? Let's say there is also this philosophical phenomenon of Laplace spirit, Laplace demon, that if there was a being that knew everything in the universe at particular moment, then because laws of nature are set, then he can extrapolate all the past and the future from that. So if we take like the mind of the Buddha, then maybe he, if, if everything was determined, then he could really know a lot about potential future, but maybe not everything because maybe even not the mind of the Buddha has so vast knowledge to know everything in the universe. But Ajahn Chah said that the uh, future is uncertain. The only thing is that it's uncertain. So uh, how how do you feel about this? Uh, is is it uh, possible to predict the future because everything is determined if you have some super psychic powers? Or it's uncertain because the nature of reality has some other element? That's the point I actually wanted to bring in. You know, to, to, to a large degree, there is this possibility. But what we forget or the people who have the strong view of determinism in, in that yes. way, it's forgetting that multiple causes and conditions. It's not just the, the karma, it's not, it's many things. So then it's very difficult, you know, and, and they change constantly. So even karma is like that, you know. Uh, karma, we have lots of baggage of karma from many, many lifetimes being in samsara. But karma come to fruition when there is the conducive conditions coming together. So whatever the, whether there's a war, whether there is certain environmental conditions, whether there's a famine, whether there is whatever health condition you have born to, or, you know, pandemic is present, all of these things, as they're coming together, different, different karma that we have, like, it will come to fruition. So it's not so straightforward. So there are some things that will happen. We can see uh, to a degree, but it's never a hundred percent. It's just interesting that sometimes, you know, that, that person's dream or people having premonition that's actually become true. And we know this, this multiple places for short term, not long term, but because of multiple causes and conditions affecting, uh, it is future is not predictable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, you know, I think there's a two things, at least two concepts from science that supports that. And one is the chaos, chaos theory, you know, that it is so complex and there's so many things going on that actually it is unpredictable. And uh, I don't think it, even if you are the Buddha, it is unpredictable because there's too many factors going into it and it just cannot be done. That's one thing. And the other thing is the idea of, uh, you know, quantum mechanics, which is uh, random at a certain level, you know. So I, I mean, I, I'm certainly no expert at all, but uh, if that is true, that it is random, then there is also a random element to what happens around us. And if there is a random element, of course, the future is, is not predictable anymore. Uh, it may be predictable to some extent, as I was yes. saying, but it will not be fully predictable if it is yes. a random element. 
So there is a, at least those two scientific concepts that I think make it for, yeah. Yeah. And Sometimes also, so like just the way that Buddha did predict a very little, he only did once like Saptasurya Gamana Sutta. Mm -hmm. Like for example, the seven suns coming kind of sutta mm -hmm. is just based on what happened before. Because these are cyclic events. We know yes. even from science, you know, how often a super volcano will erupt and what will be the significance of that and the cycles of the earth civilizations we know from previous events and which are repeated and cyclic but the thing is there are multiple things so there is a certain amount of things like you know the expansion and contraction of the the world systems and over and over again these happening so like you know big events that are cyclic well they probably will remain those can be said sure. yeah that will happen yeah. But they are not the ones that are most interesting for us. It's our okay. lives. More than things are really, you know, affected. So you can't really predict those because of that. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I thought without that, this discussion is not complete. So <laughs> we have to bring that in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Uh, uh, I, I'm thinking that uh, I, we could just make one more thing at the end to wrap it up. Because I would mm -hmm. like to read one sutta and then you comment on that as they're closing out. Uh, because yeah. I think this sutta can be used by the people who might disagree with what we are saying here. So, like la last comment, uh, uh, how do you understand in all of this this sutta? And it will be great ending. So the sutta is uh, Anguttara Nikaya six point thirty eight. It's called Atta Kari Sutta, and I will just read it and then you comment. So the sutta is one owns volition. Then a certain Brahmin went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gautama, this is my doctrine and view. One does not act of one's own volition, nor does one act of another's volition. And the Buddha responded, Brahmin, may I never see or hear of anyone holding such a doctrine or view. How on earth can someone who comes and goes on his own Say that one does not act of one's own volition, nor does one act of another's volition. What do you think, Brahmin? Is there an, an element of initiative? Yes, sir. Since this is so, do we find sentient beings who initiate activity? Yes, sir. Since there is an element of initiative and sentient beings who initiate activity are found, sentient beings act of their own volition or that of another. What do you think, Brahmin? Is there an element of persistence, exertion, strength, endurance, energy? Yes, sir. Since this is so, do we find sentient beings who have energy? Yes, sir. Since there is an element of energy and sentient beings who have energy are found, sentient beings act of their own volition or that of another. Brahmin, may I never see or hear of anyone holding such a doctrine or view. How on earth can someone who comes and goes on his own say that one does not act of one's own volition? nor does one act of another's volition. Excellent Master Gautama, excellent from this day forth, may Master Gautama remember me as a lay follower who has gone for refuge for life. End of sutta. <laughs> so if you could please comment uh, how to reconcile this sutta with all this anatta fury, all this no self, that everything is just you know happening on its own. Today, wrap it up and then I think it will be complete, uh, uh, you know. Okay, I go first, okay. So I, I think this is quite easy to uh, to uh, you know to um, 
uh, what's the right word, to join up with the idea of no free will, because uh, yes, of course, we all have volitions, we all have energy, we all initiate things, uh, and we all do these things, and of course, when I do something, it is my my energy, it is my initiative, etc. But the question is always, where does that initiative originate from? Where does it come from? And that is where the idea of causality and conditioning comes in, behind that, you know, at an earlier stage. And this is what is so interesting, because it means that, uh, and this is, I think, one of the, um, the strange things about the idea of non-self when it comes to um, uh, volition, is that people will then ask, well, how can you believe in karma in that case? How can you be responsible for your actions? Exactly for someone else, right? And this is a little bit like what this is about. And this is kind of the scary thing, because what it means is that it is a law of nature that volition you have now relates to future suffering and pain. That's what karma is about, right? So whatever will you have now, actually you will experience the pain and pain in the future, and it doesn't matter if it's coming from a sense of self or, or, or it is coming from a free will or not, that's kind of irrelevant. It is just a law of nature that there is a connection between Chaitanya and the Vipaka and Kamma, and Vipaka and the Pala in the future. Yeah, so the fruit and the result of actions happen regardless of whether there is a free will or not. It is just a law of nature. And that's kind of, that's scary, right? And it seems kind of unfair because all of these people, they don't know what they're doing and still they kind of have to reap the results. It's unfair. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if it is unfair, actually. I think still maybe it is fair because uh, if you, you know, if whatever, whatever reasons. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so that that is how I would think I would wrap it up is that these ideas are in a very deep sense, they come from non-self, but you ultimately are still responsible for your actions. Yes. Venerable, yeah. Karunika, you want to add something? Yes, I would like to add something. I would say in a, in a, in a bit broader way, because this was also very important, something that I have discussed also with Ajahn Bhavali, is um, if we are uh, completely just conditioned and we feel trapped in this, you know, in a, and haven't yet come across Dhamma, you know, just like most of major, vast majority of the people, like, you know, going on and on with things. How does the change come about was important. Yes. So, you know, important question. And, and this is really, really beautiful. I mean, you can listen to Ajahn Ramali's uh, Sutta, this is in the Dependent Liberation oh, yeah. series. Yeah. yeah. Is that, Inevitably, I mean, we know when we are born in samsara, suffering is inevitable. There isn't anybody in the world who does not suffer. We suffer in a day-to-day -day manner, in a one level that we get used to that kind of suffering. But from, to, from time to time, we are met with much more serious suffering, some kind of suffering that really hits us. Like when that unbearable kind of suffering comes our way, which happens at least at the time of the death of a loved one or something like that, which is going to happen, at that point, when that suffering is there, the nature of human beings is to find a solution. Yes. I don't want to suffer. I want to get out of this problem. What? So looking for solutions. So as you're looking for solutions, if you just happen to come across the Dhamma, like, you know, this is also where sometimes good come is helpful because there is in the Mangala Sutta, having done good in the past is also 
also have goza kama also might guide you in the direction of whether you go you find good teachings or good solutions and or right view or you go into praying things and going into kind of black magic or whatever they people do that as well you know you see as people suffer going in all sorts of directions we yes. saw that happening during covid as well people taking all kinds of solutions but if if you do come across the teachings of the buddha or this right view what happens is first of all you hear it sutta right data is you retain it vachasa parichitta you memorize it you mentally inspect it if it makes sense to you at that level it becomes your view so when that happens that means you have inspiration because a view that you have taken on board comes on board with the inspiration because you realize wow this works this is you have a small light bulb moment as that happens when you do that mental so you have inspiration so you realize yes this sounds like it it works this makes sense to me i want to do it so that inspiration is your trigger for that first kind of vidya it is called arambhakadatu the initiation yeah that's the initiation the factor of initiation comes from that initial inspiration of having heard the dhamma making sense and taking up that little bit of right view on board so once you have that inspiration then you make the effort to do it right so then it, so you can see how it's all conditioned you do it and when you do it to some degree you get a little bit of uh, result so if you don't got peaceful because sanditiko right dhamma is sanditiko apparent here and now it's not like you have to wait until you die to reap all the results even a little bit of letting go you get a little bit of peace a lot of letting go you know you get a lot of peace yeah. so like that so many the moment you apply these wisdom teachings you get some kind of result so whatever teaching you apply when you get that little bit of result then you get confidence so when you have confidence that this work you get the next level of energy you know and effort and initiation to continue so this is really beautiful so in wrapping up i also want to bring up this very beautiful sequence of how you practice the path also how you actually do your meditation and that is that pakandati pasindati santittati vimuchati and that is pakandati you are able to enter into your meditation object or enter into uh, in any other way doing that right effort or right action and that comes from inspiration pakandati is entering into pasindati is gain confidence because one can enter into easily and when you got some results then when you you have confidence when you have confidence then santittati you will get very established in that you are able to get settled on it this is especially with meditation object and then once you are stable on that vimuchati so the mind gets released but this is just the this is how yeah yeah so this is to also show all of these efforts that there is six there is three there are so many different levels of exertion mentioned in the suttas so how they came about and it is really important at the end of the day it's all nice intellectual discussion and i enjoyed we all enjoyed but what comes down is to our really simple practice of staying with the nice meditation object the rest actually happens after but a very many times our 
problem is it's really hard for us to meditate. I mean, how difficult should it be to watch the breath? It's just breath, right? Anybody should be able to watch the breath. But we know as practitioners how hard it is to watch the breath consistently, unbrokenly for a long period of time. Why is it? that we don't enter into our breath because we have developed a very bad relationship with it. We've done all the wrong things with it, right? So we haven't got, we have lost our inspiration. Sometimes we feel like this meditation is it even working or is it something wrong with me? All of those, so our inspiration has gone down and this is when it doesn't work. So it's really nice to also see still the conditioning, how the conditioning works, and this idea of inspiration, like wisdom, all of these things is the cause, the condition to, 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 to take us forward. And it's really beautiful how all these six things or whatever levels of exertion comes about starting from there and growing into a faith, next level, and Going like that. That's that's what I had to say. Sadu, sadu, sadu. Sadu, sadu, sadu. Thank you so much, venerables, for your for answering all my questions. If you have anything to add at the end, I, please go I, on. I have, I have only one thing to add. I'm feeling a bit tired. I had a very long day, and I'm yeah. <laughs> quite tired. But it's been okay. very, very nice to talk to you, Piotr. And uh, this is a really nice conversation, actually. Sometimes to have a bit more of a kind of back and forth and having conversation, actually, is very beautiful. Yeah. And nice to have someone else kind of uh, to, to work with, like with Karunika, you know, because it, it adds an extra dimension to the, to the conversation, which makes it interesting. This was, this was good fun. So thank you for uh, taking the initiative, the two of you had. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Also, I enjoyed this enormously, and it was also very helpful. It was it's a interesting and important subject, and uh, yeah, it also got me thinking, and you know, it was helpful for me. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, venerables. I think this will be very useful for uh, many people who will listen to that. We will upload this to various channels, both English, Polish, and uh, I think it was very uh, you know thorough. Um, discussion on free will and anatta so i hope it will be very valuable resource for a lot of people for a long period of time thank you so much for being my guests uh that was a wonderful time and yeah and uh, slowly i will wish you a good night so and yeah we see around uh, on the next meetings with bsba so yeah thank you and goodbye Sad, sad, sad. Yeah. 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 Yeah.